Well hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing 15,000 Miles in a Catch, by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty, published in 1922. We're on part 9, and we're continuing chapter 6. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can become part of the crew and help support my production of these books into audiobooks so they can be kept for generations to come. Now on with the story. Chapter 6 continued. It was Henry's idea, I think, that it would be a good and serviceable work if I were to spend some time in the German house tidying up all the disorder of it and putting it shipshape and mending its broken places. At that time, it occurred to us that we might beach the J.B. Charcot for a while and make the hut our own headquarters, but in any case, it would be a good thing to make it watertight again, as it might prove of great comfort to other voyagers happening to come to this spot. If left to itself, it would inevitably fall into ruins beyond repair. I readily fell in with the idea, and one morning started off in a boat carrying linoleum to mend the roof and floor, tools of various kinds, a gun, and a bag of provisions. I was eight days alone in the German house as builder and decorator, and it was certainly the loneliest time in my life. It seemed as if there was no other persons alive in the world except myself. I could imagine myself to be the last man on earth. For eight days I heard no human voice, nor any sound of human activity except my own. Surrounded by wild country where the seabirds dwelt, and in that hut which had been abandoned by its human occupants, but where the mice frolicked about by day and night, I was thrown absolutely upon my own resources and my own thoughts, and was a real Robinson Crusoe, taking my meals in loneliness without even the companionship of a speaking parrot. Yet I can honestly say that, save once, I had no fear, nor, save once again, any of those uncanny, superstitious, uneasy sensations which trouble the souls of many men when they are quite alone. I have strong and steady nerves, superstition is not one of my ailments, and I do not give a rein to morbid imaginings. I was very busy, too, for there was an immense amount of work to do in making order out of chaos. I shifted all the mouse-chewed papers from the floor and arranged those which had not been too badly damaged. I folded up the clothes and put them away in neat bundles. I packed up the tinned provisions and generally played the housewife in that domicile. Then I turned my attention to the roof and floor. They had, as I have said, been badly damaged and the roof especially was in sad need of repair. It was not easy labour for one pair of hands, but... Cutting up strips of linoleum, I nailed them across the planks. It was the best I could do, for I had no spare wood, and it would at least give the hut a new lease of life. At night, after my day's work, I used to be quite ready to stretch myself on one of the iron bedsteads, but often I could not get a wink of sleep, for at that time the fat mice used to become frisky and raced and scampered about in a most irritating way. I must now tell how one evening I was scared more than I have ever been before. I have said that I am not nervous, but I confess that on this occasion my nerves became like fiddle strings and my heart jumped into my mouth. I was preparing a meal for myself and was busy with pots and pans. Twilight had crept into the hut and outside there was that brooding silence which comes before the nights when the day birds are settling down to rest and the night birds have not yet begun to wake. I was humming a little song to myself when I seemed to hear a slight noise as of someone moving outside. I suppose one's senses get quickened like those of a wild animal when one is living alone. Anyhow, just as an animal is startled in its lair, I held a plate or something poised in my hand and listened intently. 
but nothing further seemed to stir, and of course I knew that I was utterly alone, as a mortal man may be. I went on with my work, but again I stopped, and a sense of fear, a fear of unknown things, possessed me in spite of myself. Surely something was moving, very stealthily, outside my door. Again I poo-pooed the idea, trying to get a grip upon my foolish imagination. Then for some reason or another, my eyes were attracted to the window with its broken panes, and I had a horrible sensation. It seemed to me that a face was looking in at me. It was a white face with staring eyes. It was gazing at me curiously, that pallid, dreadful visage. Then it disappeared, and I heard that stealthy noise which had first disturbed me. I could hardly breathe. I seemed to be choking. I was as though turned to stone, but again I struggled with myself. It was impossible. I must have been deluded by some trick of light or by some fantastic prank of my own senses. Perhaps I was going mad. Perhaps those days of loneliness had been too much for me. I stood still, trying to summon up a laugh to dispel the stupid fear. And then, once more, appeared that white face at the window, that ghostly face with its staring eyes in which there was a flash of yellow light. I seized something, I do not know what, and with a strangled cry rushed towards the door, at least I would see the thing clearly before I went quite mad. And as I sprang across the threshold with my weapon raised, I saw a white form slouch away into the shadows. It was a beast-like form, though I had never heard of beasts on Desolation Island except the sea elephants and the whales. I followed swiftly, and the white form sprang away from me and into the open. Then I saw it clearly. It was a dog, an Eskimo dog with white fur and a plump, well-fed body. I was as startled as if I had seen a real ghost, for it was hardly less surprising to find a dog on Desolation Island. During the next day or two, it kept within earshot of the German house and watched my movements from afar as though deeply interested in my appearance. I tried a hundred times to entice it into friendliness. I would walk quietly towards it, calling in endearing names, Good old fellow, good boy, come along then, old friend. But when I came within twenty paces or so, the white dog would bound away, and nothing that I could do would induce it to camaraderie. During our stay in this part of the island, the Eskimo dog followed us about, though always standing aloof, and we saw it many miles away from the German house. It lived at Elizabeth Bay by hunting the rabbits which abounded in Kogulian, and it was the last of its tribe. We found the bones of other dogs, showing that at one time it had had companions. Poor lonely fellow, we pitied it and would have willingly adopted it as a new messmate in the place of our lost Patrick, but it had returned to the wild state of its ancestors and was shy of humankind, though prompted by half-forgotten memories to draw near enough to watch those strange beings who had come to disturb its solitude. Among other things that I found in and around the German house during my lonely sojourn, there were wires and batteries for electric light, a tin of petrol for a motorboat of which I found the screw, and pieces of wood, a box used for holding scientific instruments and a paper written by Dr. Drygalski, saying that on a certain date, Dr. Engensberger had died, doing his duty for science and the fatherland. In a small way, I had done my duty also, and leaving the house in spick and span order, I started to tramp back to Sandy Cove. It was a perilous adventure, and I nearly joined Dr. Engensberger in that bourne whence no traveller returns. A soaking rain fell hissing on the rocks as I went forward, rushing down the slopes and gurgling in the gullies, then a heavy fog closed about me, and I could see only dimly across the range of black hills, all of which looked exactly alike, and most grim and brutal in their darkness. 
Needless to say, I lost my road, and soon was wandering helplessly without any sense of direction. Yet hour after hour I stumbled along, slipping down on moist rocks, lurching over loose boulders, staggering into deep gullies. I began to have a horrible suspicion that I should never again see my brother Henry and the crew of the J.B. Charcot. Never again should I sit in that cosy little cabin watching La Rose's placid face over a dish of steaming seal flesh or reading Horace in the dim light of our oil lamp. I was wet through to the skin, bruised and leg-weary and very hungry. I had only a few biscuits with me and occasionally I nibbled at them to keep up my strength, but with the rather awful thought that I should have to husband these resources in case another day or other days should pass and find me still wandering over these mist-enshrouded rocks. Then evening came and darkness, and I found a cave in which to pass the long hours of that horrible night. It was only a hole in a rock, but large enough for me to get a little shelter. Not much, however. Wet as I was, I became still wetter as the hours passed. All through the night, water dripped upon me from the rock roof until the water drops froze into icicles and the cold became intense. There were thirteen hours of night, and for all that time I endured an agony of suffering until it seemed to me that I should go mad. I understood something of the agonies of prisoners in the Middle Ages, entombed alive in such a hole as this. When daylight came, I found that the mist was clearing, and that on the previous day I had been wandering in the wrong direction. I was able to find my bearings, and after a painful walk, I managed to get back to Sandy Cove and to get on board the boat. I was utterly exhausted and almost delirious, The adventure had not only been a severe bodily strain, but I was faint for want of food, having eaten nothing but one or two biscuits for 24 hours. It was now the month of May, and we had a gale lasting with hardly any intervals for 30 days. It is almost impossible to give any idea of the violence of these storms, or of the extreme discomfort which they caused us to suffer. We soon became familiar with, but never reconciled to, the infernal characteristics of Kogulian weather. First, the wind would come, sweeping from the north with a deep and sullen roaring like the rush of a giant squadron of infuriated beasts, and hurry the sea onward in its course in a vast and awful swell which broke its back upon the reefs and the jagged coastline. Then suddenly, but with unfailing and periodical regularity, the wind would jump many points of the compass and pounce upon us from the southwest with a new access of elemental energy. This was the most evil hour of the incessant gale, for this southwesterly squall would bring a new sea with it, and the two great tides of the old sea and the new sea would meet in deadly rivalry, until there was a chaos of crashing, struggling, writhing, and boiling waters, as though hell were let loose upon the ocean and had thrown the bedrock of the seafloor into a new convulsion. This happened day after day for weeks. First the northerly bluster, then the southwesterly volley firing, then the seething cauldron of the rock-strewn seas. Fortunately, we lay very snug in Gazelle Basin, and although the gales raged around us and the noise of them dinned our ears and the sea lashed furiously past the harbour mouth, the little ship held to its moorings, and only the shuddering of her timbers told of the strain upon her proud spirit. On the 1st of June, when there was a temporary spell of fair weather, not idyllic, you understand, yet tranquil in comparison to the howling gales, I started out once more for an inland adventure of exploration. This time I took Agne with me. I always found him a handy fellow and an agreeable companion. 
He was more intelligent than the ordinary seaman and took a keen interest in his surroundings and had a quiet wisdom of his own which enabled us to carry on a pleasant conversation as we trudged on the long trail together. He was also very expert in the handling of the flat-bottomed boat in which we did our coasting work. After leaving the boat, one of us was to be burdened with a bag containing provisions for several days, a change of clothes for each man, a spirit lamp, a small compass, matches in a tin, a portion of the chart of Kogulian, which we had cut into strips, rolled up in a small iron tube, and knives. The other would carry the tent, sleeping bags made of sailcloth, with blankets sewed inside so that it was impervious to water, two bamboo sticks for the tent pole, and two pairs of sea boots. But that night, we hauled the boat on shore and pitched our camp, arranging our stores around us in a tidy fashion. Sometimes on our journey, we used to make a house with the boat propped upon walls of turf, thrown up with a shovel, with a little door through which we could creep into our dwelling place. But on our first night's rest, the tent was sufficient for our needs, and in the silent solitude, we prepared for a little meal. I then made a disagreeable discovery. We had forgotten to bring with us the spirit for the lamp. Perhaps that will not seem very dreadful to my readers, but I assure you that it is not a pleasant thing to be deprived of the means of making a hot drink and of warming up one's victuals when one goes a-wandering on a desert island where the wind rattles one's bones and chills one's blood and when the nights are miserably cold. I thought of Agni and hardly liked the idea of taking him further after this loss. Yet I should have been profoundly disappointed at turning back and was prepared to face the journey in spite of this additional discomfort. To test Agne and give him a chance of beating a retreat if he cared, I pretended to get very angry and said that we had better return at once. But Agne rose to the occasion with a fine spirit. As far as I am concerned, he said, I don't mind going without a hot drink. I would rather push on now that we've started. I was rejoiced to hear that and said, All right, so be it, with a feeling of gratitude to this good fellow who had the true explorer's pride. Early next morning, therefore, and before daybreak, we got into our flat-bottomed boat and rowed across the dark waters until light glimmered in the sky and the night birds fluttered away to their hiding place and the day birds awoke upon the rocks and rose in flocks with their shrill cries. For a moment, it was a beautiful day and Agni and I, alone in the splendour of it on the glistening waterway, felt as happy as mudlarks. We passed near Freshwater Lake and under the cliffs of high mountains down which the water from melted snow came tumbling in foamy cascades. We went to the end of Irish Bay and hauling our boat on shore slept there another night, making the best of our cold victuals of biscuit and tinned meat. On the following day we left our boat and carrying our tent and bags walked for seven miles across a flat moraine until we arrived in front of a great uncharted glacier and a high mountain range. There was no pass through which we could find a way, but we decided not to be balked by the mountain and to take it by a frontal attack. It was a stiff, steep climb over those jagged peaks and sharp ridges and giant boulders. All the streams were frozen as hard as iron and we suffered terribly from thirst until our tongues were parched and our lips dried. We walked until night without drinking and we had no desire for conversation. With our teeth clenched, very grimly and doggedly we climbed and climbed, cutting our boots and blistering our feet and watching how the shadows roamed like spectres between those gaunt hills and how the rocks assumed fantastic shapes. All these endless fortresses of black basalt seemed demon-haunted as the darkness fell and strange echoes of inhuman sound came up from the valleys and the gorges where night birds were chasing their prey. We had reached the snow heights now 
and as we walked we took handfuls of the powdery flakes and moistened our lips and our swollen tongues. I was struck by the magic of the whiteness around us, where this pure untrodden snow lay upon the black ridges, giving a strange softness to the boulders, so that they seemed like pillows of down, upon which it would be good to lay our heads and go to sleep. That night we fixed up our tent in the snow at the bottom of a deep ravine, where we might get shelter from the wind, and here Agne and I lay in our sleeping bags, chattering over the experience of the day and trying to get warmth. I have a vision of Agne's head sticking out of his sleeping bag and of his old black pipe filling the tent with smoke and glowing in the darkness. He could not do without his pipe, and it was a source of immense comfort to him, though I had to suffer for it. His comfort was short-lived, for we spent a miserable night. Rain fell heavily, and soon our tent was full of water, and we lay in cold pools, feeling very wretched and uncomfortable. We were glad when daylight came again, and we could push on and get a little warmth by exercise. But our progress was barred after some time by a huge basalt wall towering above us to an immense height, unassailable and unbroken. We were pygmy men standing below the bastions of a giant citadel. It frowned down upon us in gloomy majesty, and we stared up at its grim face with a sense of awe and impotence. The Zai Glacier had cut its way through this great mountain range, forming one among a long series of immense glaciers, which, as I have proved beyond doubt, belonged to a range of snow-clad and ice-bound mountains hitherto uncharted, extending from Mount Richard to Mount Ross. All this mountain system is set down on the chart, which I have done my best to correct and complete. Agne and I managed to force our way round the hills and search for some hot springs which had been marked upon our old inaccurate chart, but although we covered the ground in which they were alleged to be, we could find no trace of them, and I do not believe they exist. Our provisions were now dwindling, and I gave the word to turn back on the homeward trail. Our shoes had been worn to strips on the first day, and we had to take to our sea boots, which made walking very heavy and slow in this wild and rugged country. The rain had swollen the streams, and when we came back to the spot where we had left our tent in order to push on unhampered, we found it extremely difficult to get across to. We spent some time in trying to find a ford, no higher than our leggings, but at last, Agne, who had become impatient for his food, decided to wade across. He went immediately up to his waist in the ice-cold water, and I heard him shouting and swearing as he threw up his arms and ploughed through the stream with stiff legs. I could not help laughing at him until my sides ached. It was really very comical, though painful to poor Agne. I decided to play a more patient game, and at last I succeeded in finding a part of the stream where the water did not run so deep. When I got back to the tent, I saw Agne changing his clothes, and again I laughed at him. He looked at me suspiciously, wondering how I had managed to keep so dry. Anyhow, he said, I suppose your boots are full of water, Captain. No, no, my friend, I replied calmly. As you will see, the leather is wet outside, but I have kept dry feet. Well, I'm blessed, he said and he stared at me as if I was a wonder worker. On the way back, we found a big salt lake, and out of compliment to my good comrade, I called it Agne Lake. In future years, when other travellers stand upon its banks, I hope they will remember that name and give a thought to the young seaman of the little J.B. Charcot, who played the accordion with such a gentle touch and hunted seals with such berserker fury. I am glad to have immortalised Leon Agne, good Norman, good seaman, and good fellow. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story 
tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.